everyone present, everyone watching uh, via the internet. Uh, my friends, uh, I've spoken on the uh, Decalogue, the Ten Commandments in past, and I'll treat it towards the end uh, of my words today in the homily. But uh, my friends, on this uh, gospel reading, uh, I often tell you how my professors would teach us and things they would say, and one of them uh, had made a comment about this particular gospel, and uh, what he said uh, was that wherever God builds a house of prayer, the devil sets up a shop there. And, uh, you know, of course, that was shocking to hear. Uh, he went on, though, to explain that people, rather than Satan as such, always finds a way of bringing bad into the good. And this is because there is a house of sorts called the house of the human heart. And it is often a divided house. This week, uh, the prophet Jeremiah made a comment, and he said, how torturous is the human heart? Uh, how can it be remedied? And uh, um, it caused me to reflect uh, for this weekend. And uh, my friends, this divided heart tarnishes all things good with a measure of the bad. Here's the thing. We bring our divided hearts with us wherever we go. We bring our weaknesses and our sinfulness into God's house. Now, uh, that uh, would not be a problem as such if we were uh, very humble, repentant sinners. But so many are prideful and self-righteous and harbor anger. Pride and self-righteousness and anger take wing and uh, do not rest until God's house has a little devil's shop in it. I suppose we make God's house a carbon copy, if you will, to use an older phrase, carbon copy, of one's divided heart. In many ways, I believe uh, my professor was referencing these things, and uh, I suspect this is what happened to God's temple in Jerusalem uh, in the account of the gospel today. The divided human hearts had invaded it. Uh, David and Solomon had built the temple, being referenced in the gospel, um, and they built it as the great national sanctuary of God uh, and his people. In the course of the years, it had been sacked by foreigners, destroyed by the Babylonians, rebuilt by returning exiles, and apparently was in the process of being refurbished or under further construction uh, at Jesus' time when the gospel when was being recorded. Uh, that was under King Herod. But what did, D, what did our Lord find when he went up to the temple to pray on the great feast of Passover? He found his own people turning part of God's temple into a marketplace of terrible practices. He uses the word marketplace. And uh, most of you are familiar, if you've traveled, a marketplace uh, is a very interesting place. I've been to most parts of Mexico, in particular Puerto Vallarta, and there's a very famous marketplace. And what happens there is haggling, arguing. All sorts of unsavory business practices going on. 
So the word being used is very deliberate. Jesus says, marketplace. And they knew. People haggling over, even though the scriptures don't say, there was probably physical altercations. And this was all happening in God's house. Jesus' righteous anger at the conduct of his fellow citizens is easily understandable. Jesus, we're told, said, take these out of here and stop making my father's house a marketplace. The temple as a place of sacrifice, as we know it, had to have a certain commercial activity uh, attached to it. In Jesus' time, animal sacrifice was still present and uh, it was acceptable, but more than that, they had to have an acceptable animal, meaning no animals with blemishes. And while that sounds terrible to us, we have to remember it's the time, remember we have to go back to that time and understand this is what they were doing. So these animals had to be made available. The money changers had to be there to accommodate the Jewish worshipers who were traveling in from all parts of the known empire. And uh, my friends, uh, they came with foreign currency. And uh, that currency was ritually unacceptable uh, to be used and thus had to be exchanged for Jewish shekels. Also, all Jewish males who were working had to pay the temple tax. So that needed to be exchanged also because they were being paid in Roman uh, currency. All of these things then, it seems, were necessary, meaning the commercial part. So why was Jesus so upset? The business taking place was steeped in fraud. The scales, as we're told in the scriptures, were all, uh, uh, they were not equal. This was, as we understand it, unsavory business culture, as we would call it today. And this culture, savory as it was, would affect the poor most adversely, making it nearly impossible for them to fulfill the religious duty. The scriptures favor the poor, so it is disgusting to see them treated with such callous disregard. If we go to the Beatitudes, we would find this. Jesus speaks on the Sermon of the Mount, this is a piece of it. Our Lord was angered by the mistreatment then of the poor. And then there was the whole uh, feeling that Jesus had that the temple had become a place of worship without sincere reverence to it. Jesus used the occasion, as we see in this, to prophesy that this form of worship and these sacrifices would come to an end. In fact, he would even say the temple itself will be destroyed. And it would be. But he said there would be a new temple, entirely different. It's referenced in the gospel, but uh, there's another gospel reading for the third Sunday in Lent in year A and it's known as the Samaritan woman at the well. And Jesus speaks about worship and about uh, reverence from the heart there. And he says, not there in that mountain, not on this mountain, but in spirit, in heart, 
In truth will you worship the Lord God. And uh, ultimately, because of the way it was spoken in the Gospel today, the true worship of God would pass through the very temple of Jesus himself. And those who are incorporated in him through his grace. Perhaps one can understand then that this new temple, because St. Paul talks in a particular way, uh, would be the redeemed human heart that is graced by Christ. The new temple is the Christian heart. If this is so, our hearts are the dwellings, the temple of the house of God. And we must not let it be corrupted as the Jerusalem temple was corrupted. We cannot allow Satan to set up a little shop in it. When St. Paul spoke about this, he, he said, be careful with your bodies because it's the temple of the Holy Spirit, the dwelling of it. And this is where I jump from what St. Paul is saying moving into this idea of the human heart. And Christ spoke about that. He said, from the heart comes wickedness and malice. So purge it. Because I know he was talking about people were stuck with food. What goes in? And he said, no, 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 no. It's what comes out. This place, and uh, we're told God knows very well. And I think this is why the gospel ends the way it does. Jesus said, I don't need people to tell me about humanity. I know it too well. Friends, as I watched uh, Pope Francis travel through a very dangerous but very ancient and very uh, holy land of Iraq, and uh, watched him try to broker peace amongst people who have been warring for a long time. And I watched his body language to see if what he was saying and what his body was saying were the same. Was he at peace? And he seemed to be at peace. And those around him seemed to be at peace. I also watched how they conducted the liturgy <laughs> which was strikingly different. Um, but, you know, it's the Eastern Rite, and I don't know much about the Eastern Rite. Uh, but, um, but it made me wonder about all the times when uh, um, the church had its great councils and assemblies, 21 in all. Uh, I'm talking about Nicaea, Constantinople. There's four of those. Ephesus, Chalcedon, Nicaea, Lateran, uh, times four times. Uh, Trent, Vatican I, Vatican II. I was never there, and none of you were. We've read about it. They had heated conversations about a great many things. They addressed many things canonically, about church law, liturgically, about how the priest is to act and walk, and what we say, what we don't say. They discussed how the church should be set up, how it should look, what kind of art should be in it. But I would like to believe from my studies of it that all of these great assemblies, all these great councils were primarily convened for the renewal of the house of the human heart, how to properly worship together. It is always the condition of the human heart 
the soul that matters most with God. And so it must matter most to us then if the Father feels this way. We have the grace of the Lenten season to help us attend to the temple of our lives, to make them a place of worship and sincere reverence. So then I ask, is Christ at home in your heart? Or is he like an intruder there? And what does he find when he comes to that place, that temple, your human heart? The picture of Jesus cleaning the temple is a reminder of what we should be doing with sin in our lives. Of course, with his grace. Friends, I always look to scriptures to uh, find these things. And uh, uh, I went to found in Saint, uh, from Peter, Second Peter. Um, all of you, he says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility in your dealings with one another. For God opposes the proud, but bestows favor on those he humbles. And St. Peter would go on, so humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Cast your worries upon him because he cares for you. And I want to say a few words about the commandments. First John 2 it says, my children, I'm writing to you that you may not commit sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus, the Christ, the righteous one. He is expiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for those of the whole world. The way we may be sure that we know him is to keep his commandments Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not found in him. But whoever keeps his word, the love of God is truly being perfected in him. And this becomes the important line for me. This is the way we may know that we are in union with him. Whoever claims to abide in him ought to live as he lived. The Ten Commandments, also known as the Decalogue. Moses went up a mountain and spoke with God. And even as they were conversing, God said, you need to go back down. Those people of mine are acting foolish. So he gives them the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments was just the beginning. It asked for the bare minimum of moral decency. Isn't this surprising? The bare minimum. The people were just coming out of slavery, yes, but they had been living amongst people who had different ways. And God was setting up the new covenant. Do this, and you'll be my friends. But it was the bare minimum. How so? Moses would go on to put 600 and, uh, 603 more, 602 more 
precepts to them. He added to them. Jesus came, and I want you to fully understand, I am not telling you that you do not pay attention to the Ten Commandments. I would never say that. But oftentimes people will say, I have not committed adultery, I have not committed murder, I have not stolen. And my response will be, and? And? To be a disciple of Jesus Christ and to say, well, I follow the commandments only, you are falling short of the gospel. Because the Ten Commandments were given in ancient time to an ancient people, the Israelites. And it was the bare minimum. Jesus did not come to abolish it, but he came to make us understand and then called his disciples to a higher level. No longer bare minimum. More. More. And the way he goes about it, uh, at the last Mass, I spoke more about the commandments when I told people, go and read the Sermon of the Mount, in particular the Beatitudes, because a lot of Christians push it aside and don't realize it was very radical thinking. And when we place his sermon, Jesus goes up to a mountain, he sits down, and he begins to teach. Matthew assumes you know what's going on here. Moses went up to a mountain. He sits down. And God gives some commandments. Matthew says Jesus goes up the mountain. He sits down. But he gives the new teaching. He did not abolish the commandments, but he said, you have heard it said. This is very rabbinical, but it, and maybe it, for you guys it doesn't mean anything, but it meant a great deal. You have heard it said that thou shalt not kill. And then Jesus says, I say, even if you have the anger in your heart, you will be held responsible. The first one, physically, Jesus said, no, my disciples, if you have it in your heart, and the word anger, there are different ones for Greek, and he had a particular one. He said, even that. He would say that about adultery. You have heard it said. Because the Pharisees, well, I have to be careful because we have children. If the man, you know, you know what I'm going to, the man didn't enter the house and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then he didn't commit adultery. But Jesus said, I tell you, even if it is in your heart, it is done. See what I mean? He upgraded, <laughs> moves to a higher standard. In order to be his disciple, then uh, we have to move past, move beyond. I am not telling you you do not listen to the commandments, the Ten Commandments. But Jesus said, if we really want to 
be a disciple of Jesus Christ, we have to study his life and everything he said and everything he did. And that's what that passage from uh, 1 John was about. To claim to know him is to imitate his life and what he said. You remember what he said? All the prophets, all the laws, here it is. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and you shall love others. And then before he, when he turned to the Father, he said, in my words, by the way, not as you love yourself shall you love others, but as I have loved you. A higher standard. So I ask you to reflect on that. Certainly, uh, certainly the Ten Commandments are of great importance to us, but they are not the end. Study his Beatitudes, where it is a radical change. Follow his ways, and then truly we will be able to say we are disciples of Jesus Christ.